Remember when the hottest political potato was adjudicating the morality of drone warfare? I mean, it's almost quaint to think about now, but drone warfare was a major controversy until the public decided we had bigger fish to fry. Armed drones were first used in late 2001 and deployed from bases in Pakistan and Uzbekistan to assassinate terrorist leaders inside Afghanistan before our nation turned its lonely eyes in the sky to Iraq. By 2009, the CIA claimed to have killed more than half of their most wanted al-Qaeda suspects using UAVs. In 2013, in the first public death toll provided by the U.S. government for UAVs, balking corporate lobbying opportunity in a senator suit, Lindsey Graham claimed there had been 4,700 casualties at the hands of UAVs. It is an astounding number, and that was six years ago. The government isn't inclined to update us, so who knows the number at this point? We are told that the use of drones saves lives, and by removing American soldiers from the battlefield, it's hard to argue that it doesn't at least save the lives of frontline American soldiers. But while we can keep soldiers out of physical harm's way, we cannot remove them from the battle or from making battlefield decisions. Eye in the Sky is about a decision to shoot a missile at a house where terrorists are preparing to kill scores of people with a suicide bomb. Should the military decide to shoot the missile, a little girl selling bread outside would be killed. It's a story told from three perspectives. The intelligence apparatus embodied by Helen Mirren's character, a colonel in the UK military with Alan Rickman playing her lieutenant general. The eyes in the sky themselves played by MQ-9 pilot Aaron Paul and his A1C. She's the one aiming the camera and lasing the targets. And the targets they see on the ground in Kenya living alongside our embedded agent allies and scores of civilians. In this film, we know a drone is not just an unthinking, unblinking killing machine. You don't just point it to a spot on the map and let it loose. There's an operator at the controls taking orders from someone, possibly very far away, who is probably taking orders from yet a third person. It's a global operation that has decidedly local consequences. And while it feels in its description like it's simply a trolley problem discussion from an intro to philosophy class, the film is much more than that. Between its terrific performances and central question, the feeling of uncertainty that pervades the film isn't played only for tension. It's instructive. On today's Friendly Fire, revolutions are fueled by postings on YouTube as we discuss the 2016 Gavin Hood-directed Eye in the Sky. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that knows that revolutions are not fueled by postings on YouTube, but in fact, three white guys sitting around talking about a war movie. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. I usually pre-write those, but this time I just had to go off the top of my head because I forgot. Wow, well, you really nailed it in my estimation. <laughs> it, it sounded prepared. And professional. Yeah. It, are you going to are you going to take exception to be being lumped in as a white guy, John? It made it made me mad and I hadn't even said a word in this show yet. I had no idea your prompter went down over there. <laughs> I I did not see this movie coming. I I think I thought it was a Shia LaBeouf movie about like a 
evil supercomputer that takes over the U.S. military. Do you frequently, like, begin a movie just with the paranoia of, of LaBeouf? <laughs> <laughs> thinking it's going to be something that he's in. That is what a strange position to start from. Oh, Eagle Eye is the name of the movie uh, that I thought this was. How, when did you figure it out? When did you figure out that Shia Sh- Shia Le- Le Beef wasn't going to be in the movie? Oh, almost immediately. But I, I just like you know, I went around the entire day before going. Oh, I'm going to have to watch this oh, right. LaBeouf movie. It's from 2015, and it feels it feels like a very contemporary movie. If you had told me it had come out this year, I would have believed you. And also, I'm surprised that I didn't hear more about it. Why did this movie not do a significant critical business? It did do significant critical business. It got very high ratings on Metacritic and stuff. It's it's. Um, I think the issue is maybe that it's kind of an international film so it might not have had like the full the full backing of the u.s studio system the british subtitles were kind of a turnoff yeah <laughs> for the american audience <laughs> <laughs> well i mean i could see like from a, from an american audience standpoint not super flattering really interesting right i mean all american brass and politicians are portrayed as really not just bloodthirsty but also just that 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 particular sort of American that's just sort of blustering, maybe incompetent, but also full of confidence. Yeah. And I mean, there's not anytime, anytime we switch over to somebody from the state department in the United States, you're just like, Oh, I hate this guy. I'm sure this is total Bush administration. Like, yeah. Why is this guy interrupting my ping pong game to ask my permission to kill a four year old girl? Yeah, That was my point. They're all busy doing other things and they're just popping out of their meetings just to say, yeah, uh, kill him. Obviously. Yeah. Right. There's a, there's a, what a little girl. What what, what, are you wasting my time for? (laughs) Yeah. But then, you know, the British are portrayed as like complete limp dicks, like really bumbling, like boobs, which of course they don't, but, but, but sensitive intellectual, uh, people of the world, worldly people. This really reminded me of weirdly, uh, one of the more recent Japanese Godzilla films, Shin Godzilla. Did did either of you guys see that? No? I'm going to I'm going to let you answer for us. <laughs> well, it came out like it came out a couple of years ago and I just I happened to catch it on a plane and it's like almost a farce set in a Godzilla like Godzilla comes into Tokyo. You're telling like, me you saw a Godzilla film that was not to be taken seriously. It almost all takes place in like a huge conference room with like 30 government functionaries like trading like analyses back and forth and nothing like like they don't do anything because mm. because they, like nobody has enough authority to just make a call. And yeah. it really felt like that at times, like the kind of like everybody is frustrated with the bureaucracy, but the bureaucracy kind of like makes the case for itself and also can't just be ignored. And are we still talking about the Godzilla movie now? Well, I think we're talking about both. I, I love the way that you say um, you caught it on a plane. You know, in the old days, there was just one movie playing. And so yeah. you could say, oh, I, yeah, was, I, I saw it on a plane. Headset and- <laughs> yeah, but, but now you can choose what movie you watch. That yeah. you saw it on a plane doesn't forgive the sin. <laughs> yeah. Ben, they're, you they're had a hundred like, movies to watch and you chose you Godzilla. Cho- you absolutely chose it. I, I watched it on the recommendation of Elliot Kalin of The Flop House, another movie podcast oh, on this very podcast network. High five. You to know the what? Flop I would House. take his rec too. Yeah. 
Now that I know he recommended it, maybe I'll watch it. It was good. <laughs> well, uh, back to Eye in the Sky. I know I have terrible taste in things, but this was a good thing. I enjoyed this movie. There's a lot of DNA in this movie that we've seen in other films we've watched recently, including Helen Mirren playing um, someone that's like pretty hard bitten. Total yeah. badass. Total badass. And, um, and you know, an incredible cast. I mean, it, it, with, with each successive layer of bureaucracy, we're also introduced to another totally great actor uh, doing, like, pretty great work. And this is also a great adventure movie. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a high-stakes um, techno thriller, but also it's just a full-on pretty good war movie. Helen Mirren is yeah. one of the great withering glancers in the game, I think. <laughs> when she when she gets you locked. She sharpened that. You're gonna you're gonna lower the CDE below fifty percent <laughs> when she looks at you. You're just gonna do it. Mm-hmm. And say, yes, mum. Getting on FaceTime with her would be very intimidating. Uh, the production choices for this film, I think, are an interesting reflection of the real life. Uh, relationships between all of these things uh, because all of the top three actors never worked with each other in person so the uh, the Aaron Paul character was never in a room with Helen Mirren and Helen Mirren was never in a room with Alan Rickman like the, all of the best actors in this film never worked with each other and that's such an interesting analog to the relationships inherent in a drone warfare situation like the one we get in the film like you're 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 having phone calls. You're not really doing it in person. Right, right. You're talking to someone in Hawaii. You're talking to people. I mean, s- spread all around the world, really, in this film, including local, uh, the local military in Kenya. Yeah. No one ever meets anybody. Yeah. Firsthand. I think the strategy here is that if John Rambo walked into any one of these rooms, he could take out those specific computers, but still the drone would be working, you know? I always thought the mind was the best weapon, Ben. Times change. Uh, This should date this reference for you guys, but I was working a video job uh, down in Victorville, California, where uh, they had some of these Raptor drones, and I was shocked at how big they are in person. When you started to talk, I was like, you worked at a video store in Victorville, California? (laughs) And then you're like, oh, you were making a video as part of the Boeing company. 65-foot wingspan on these Reapers. Yeah. And you when they're when they're shot, like when you see them flying, you don't really get a sense of their size, but they are really enormous. Yes. And it seems like they can just hang out in the sky for a long time. They can. I've got a I've got a couple of full disclosures here. Okay. Uh, a couple of years ago, I did a I did a tour of military bases in Africa, which were all <clears throat> Reaper bases. I thought Ben was the Africa expert of Friendly Fire. He is, but this is this is Ben's been to Africa a lot more times than I have. But but I did this tour of uh, of of some drone bases there, sponsored mm-hmm. by uh, by a listener to of of our show, listener of Friendly Fire, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Martin, retired U.S. Air Force, who was a Reaper pilot wow. during the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts and then became kind of the, uh, he was, I guess, the he was the CO or, or uh, he was in charge of these uh, Reaper bases in Africa 
during a period wow. when it was like, what are we? I didn't know we had Reaper bases in Africa. And he was like, well, it's kind of new. It's a new thing we're working on. Um, is, and is the Reaper a successor to the Predator? They're different. The Predator was the MQ-1. This is the Reaper, which is the MQ-9. So it's their evolutions. It's like the iPhone 6 versus yeah, the iPhone 4. I've met these uh, Reapers in person, and the one that would be in this movie, flying over Kenya, would have launched from one of the bases that I visited on my little USO tour. So I reached out to Lieutenant Colonel Matt Martin and said, will you watch Eye in the Sky and send me your notes? Wow. <laughs> so cool. I have extensive notes from the guy who would have been the, he, so he's performed a variety of roles, right? He would have been the pilot in the shipping container in his early career, and then he would have been further and further up the chain as the years went by. So ask me anything. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I think all of the moments of pedantry might come from him, right? Well, so he did, uh, he really enjoyed the film. In his estimation, this is the best, um, the best representation of, of drone warfare that he's seen on film. But of course, wow. he's an Air Force lieutenant colonel, and so he has so many nitpicky comments about. But also, also he he felt he felt like they really did their research, and um, and it and a lot of what they put on screen is correct. And from my experience, like when we when we walked in, when the movie takes us into that shipping container with Jesse Pinkman the first time, that's exactly what they look like. I, I mean, it, I was super impressed because it because wow. they captured the feel of it exactly. Well, so here's, a, here's my first question. Um, the, this entire film was shot in South Africa, but the settings are like Surrey, England, this Air Force base outside of Las Vegas, Nairobi, Kenya, and like some room in Hawaii somewhere. Like everything is super distributed. And so I, I wondered like what, like, what is the point of controlling the drones from so many different spots i couldn't answer that question i suppose i i should write him on and get the get the breakdown but i think it's meant to let people do their job where they live i guess go go home to your family at the end of the day this film doesn't have that scene to show ultimate conference call realism where people are talking over each other and then stopping and then saying, no, you go. <laughs> <laughs> Is somebody in a cafe? Can you put your phone on mute if you're in a noisy place? <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm in a car. I'm on my way there. <laughs> it sure seems like there are some great advantages to a decentralization of this process, one of which being that, uh, that you're safer uh, because by attacking one part of the unit, the others remain safe. Right, but but we're fighting these asymmetrical warfare situations where it's very unlikely that yeah. Al Shabaab is going to attack the you know Whitehall. Right. So so it's a, a no one's going to nine eleven Whitehall. <laughs> right. So there's got to be other reasons uh, for it um, the, for that for the system to be that complicated and, and convoluted. Right. But I mean, it's another, it might, it might just be that you can, so why not do it, right? If you can fly the plane from Las Vegas, that seems like a pretty good trick. Why not just, why not just fly him from Creech? Like that, that would be an, that would be an easy, an easy get in a, in a procurement meeting. Uh, does your friend 
in the Air Force. He's our friend. Okay. Yeah. Hello, friend. <laughs> I wonder if there is a difference inside the military between pilot and drone pilot yes. culturally and reputationally and everything else. Like, do you think pilots look down on drone pilots as being not real? So I have an anecdote about this. Uh, we flew into Addis Ababa and were picked up at the airport, uh, picked up at the airport by an air force pilot, a captain who was an a 10 pilot. Cool. He's our driver and it's me and Lieutenant Colonel Martin and Jonathan Colton and David Reese. And our driver is this, this, and he's a real, he's like a blonde air force jet jockey. And we so, start. So this base was looking for the most, uh, masculine jacked up performers that they could find. Yeah, that's right. They were like, where do we get the guys that are just super adrenal? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this pilot, we're driving along, and he and uh, Colonel Martin start just kind of doing that thing where, oh, you're pilot? Oh, yeah, yeah. What are you, you know, what do you do? You know, he, I think it was one of those, like, what do you fly kind of mm -hmm. questions. And uh, Matt said, the Reaper. And the other pilot, like, audibly kind of scoffed. Wow. Whoa. I was like, oh, well, you know, like, oh, I. Well, I thought you were a pilot or something. I feel like, like that, that would never happen airplane to airplane, like non drone. Well, I mean, I don't know if you're an F fifteen pilot and the other guy's like, I fly F one for you know, C one forty ones. I mean there's there's gonna be a kind of like, oh, we're we belong to slightly different guilds. Yeah. But this guy, like, <laughs> there was an attitude. That's such a how much you bench question yeah. among pilots. But then <laughs> but then uh Colonel Martin says, Yeah, I've got 14,000 combat hours, like fired weapons in anger 45 times or whatever. How, what about you? How many, you know, how many flight hours do you have? And the guy was like, well, I mean, you know, actual flight hours in an actual airplane, but, uh, you know, I've never, I've never fired a gun or anything. Those arguments must happen all the time. And it, and wow. you could see that, that, that Matt was infuriated yeah. because he's like, <laughs> I'm, I'm freaking combat veteran pilot. Yeah. Like yeah. one, one of the, one of the few that has this many hours in the world and you captain ding dong is like flipping me some guff about it. Yeah. But then captain ding dong's like, yeah, well I'm pulling G's when I fly and you're eating cheese <laughs> or whatever they say. Pulling in the Air Force. G's and eating cheese. <laughs> That, so that's the, that's the drone pilot. That's motto. a t-shirt. <laughs> are you pulling G's or are you eating cheese? So, I, and I, honestly, I didn't know which side to be on. The case is made in this movie that is like every bit as harrowing and, and in reading a little bit about it, like the pilots of drones like suffer from PTSD and, and like other combat like trauma just as much as anybody else in the military. Well, I think I think watching it, you see that drone pilots would suffer that stuff a lot more. Right. If you're in an F-15, you don't get to like contemplate the face of somebody that no, might die. Not at all. Somebody's not only that, but like the bends you get when you step out of a trailer and get to go sleep in your own bed versus live on a base for years. Well, like that yeah. that idea of like th that's a hard switch. That's not a dimmer to your life. That is off yeah. and on. Right. 
That that moment when Alan Rickman steps out of the conference room and the guy hands him back the baby doll, and he like is suddenly, suddenly in a totally different reality, where he got the wrong baby doll is like, is, is a very powerful moment in the film. Yeah, a great capper. You wanted a baby doll, I give you the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> The, the technology to be able to look down on these scenarios in such detail and hover over them and, and consider their faces, but also their predicaments. I asked, I asked Colonel Martin about this a lot, and he said that this was absolutely true to life and that you do get, you know, he said the scene of the girl with the, um, with the hula hoop, he was like, that just felt so real to me. Because these drones, they do have a 12-hour um, like cruise time. They can just go up and just hover over these towns all day. And yeah, that whole handoff between crews, like changing shifts, yeah. was, was really interesting to see. You know, they're actually flying the plane. It's not just on autopilot. Like, you sure. gotta, you're working this stick just as much as you would anything. Yeah. But yeah, if you were in, at any other time in history, if you're a jet pilot, you get a, somebody comes over the radar radar and says like you're go for launch and you fire your missiles and you fire it at some building that's in the you don't even see half the time right but here you're looking down you're watching them go about their lives for hours at a time hours and hours and then and then you kill them um i think it's pretty i think it's pretty profound why five north two zero did you see anything there do you think there are some drone pilots who wear a g-suit into the trailer just to do it, <laughs> just just one hooked up to a, to their iPhone. That just you is know like, you could get up and go to the bathroom. You don't just need to piss yourself. <laughs> do they have those uh, those gamer chairs that like vibrate when you? <laughs> yeah, a little or like the the stools that drummers use, where there's a, a bass speaker in it. Oh man, I want to float a question out here because I think a ton of the film relies on your feelings for Aaliyah. Do you think those feelings change if her father is more of an extremist instead of a guy who's uh, teaching her math and trying to make sure that she's a well-rounded person? Boy, I, you know, I think like she she is a, a perfect innocent, and right. I felt like the movie is not making us like her more by having her dad be acceptable by our standards, but but showing that like the somalis that live in eastly are not a are not universally radicalized in the way that al-shabaab is i mean i have a close friend who's somali and has spent a lot of time in nairobi and she told me that like when she goes to eastly she has to cover up in a way that she does not in the rest of the city because wow. she'll be recognized as somali and be, and kind of not conforming to the you know, religious prescriptions that everybody has agreed upon in that culture. And, you know, like I, I spent a little time with her in Nairobi and, you know, we went to outdoor coffee shops and restaurants and stuff. And she was dressed in pretty standard Western clothing. But if she went to Eastleigh, she would have to put on a veil and, and put on traditional clothing. And, like that part is is very true. Like the guys on the on the trucks with the with the you know bed mounted machine gun is bullshit. Like like the Kenyan military would not tolerate something like that in Nairobi. 
like as a place, Nairobi is really interesting because every house is behind big walls, like you see, and and so like what happens within a house is like very it's, it feels very secret compared to where we live, you know. I think it's a really interesting question, and you know, I I wonder just at at a at a very like screenwritery level uh, because she's she's so young that she doesn't she doesn't really have her own values, right? She's communicating her father's what we would think of as Western values by by uh, comparison. And that, that probably does make her more sympathetic. The stakes of her life become greater because, because we recognize in her potential to join us, right? Uh, to, right. to be somebody that we meet in London someday. And also the way he values his daughter as a person and as a, you know, as his progeny, it makes the scenes later on in the film, especially there at the end, have have a greater impact than if if he was being presented as somebody who was like, women should you know women are here only to serve or whatever his you know whatever a more a more alienating take on him would have been. I thought it was like the there was two like really interesting moments about that like the one where he's like hiding the books because somebody's come by to you know, hire his services is one like communication of like, like these are our values, but they're not the world's values. But then when he has to like turn to her and scold her for using a hula hoop in the presence of a strange man, it's, uh, it's, it's different. It's like, it's worse. And it feels really bad that time. Yeah. And I think that that's the last interaction that we see between him and her before uh, the drone attack one that will haunt him the rest of his life sadly right the film does a good job of giving us all this Aaliyah story and really giving none of it to anyone who makes any decisions but that difference feels pretty imperceptible the way that that information is dosed out throughout the film and I thought that was really well done like none of the decision makers know anything about this our faces weren't pushed down in it either right Right. I mean, we get to meet this little girl. She seems realistic. She seems like, I mean, everybody in this movie seems like a fairly realistic depiction of, of like a person in that situation. That's a great point. Like one of my favorite things about the movie is the use of music or lack of it. Like there's never any sort of amplification of emotion due to a musical score here. It feels like the music is very spare and where there is, it's, it's only like metronomic or, or used in order to increase tension, but there's no manipulation in the score, I felt. And I think that was good. This movie has a lot of very confident directing choices and storytelling choices like that. And to your point, John, like there are so many movies that we've seen where you see a little girl walking down the street with a bastic full of bread to sell. Right. And it is like, oh God. Yeah, right. Like there were a couple of moments where I was like, she's not doomed, she's not doomed. And, and then, you know, my hopes would be dashed again. Aaliyah's not a perfect princess either. Like, when Jama buys all her be- her bread and then throws it at that guy and runs away, Aaliyah picks up the bread and resells it after selling it the first time. <laughs> yeah. And guess what? She's still charging 50 shillings yeah. for bread that's been on the ground. What the fuck, Aaliyah? Yeah, well, that, <laughs> that, that is, that's pretty complicated, that moment where you're like, what? No. I mean, I get it and everything, but geez. Discount the bread, Aaliyah. Go home or something. 
Imagine how psyched her dad would be if she came back with like... Double the money. Yeah. Or a little less than double the money. You got to discount bread that's been on the ground. Oh, I see what you're saying. She should have sold it for 30 shillings. If she had, she would have sold it a lot faster and we wouldn't be in this predicament. Right. Well, it seemed, you know, watching it, I wondered multiple times, this scenario where they've got these baddies in their sights and there's a little girl outside the wall and it's creating this much agony. And so this was something that I asked Matt Martin or he volunteered and he said, you know, absolutely in a situation like that, if you had two top baddies putting suicide vests on in a, in a a place, you would, you would put a missile in there with no reservation, right? It would, there would not have been as much hand wringing as there was in this particular scenario. But he said there were all the time scenarios where you had a potential target and there was a little girl hula hooping outside and you really had to kind of, uh, there were this many people engaged and this, this much deliberation about collateral damage. Well, that's the thing is like the loading up of the of the suicide vest is is like very visually evocative. But the case being made is that these people are dangerous, whether or not they're loading up a suicide vest right this second. Well, and the, and, and the, the conceit of the movie is that they have the technology. They have 2055 technology to have a little cockroach that can fly based on its own internal battery can fly like down the street in a window and then transmit perfect video from from a rafter which isn't the we unbelievable don't part of that scene was not the sense that there could be uh micro technology to that end but that someone could fly it without line of sight in the rafters of a building and not run into any of the rafters i thought uh, i thought that was like the the, these people, uh, the the Kenyan Secret Service people on the ground, have spent so much time with VR <laughs> goggles on, uh, flying drones. I mean, they, they would have to do it eighteen hours a day. Don't you believe the beetle exists today? No, I do. I don't I don't? Not the, that beetle. The beetles out there. The thing about the Area beetle. Area fifty one is full of beetles. What, what about the what about the hummingbird? No, I don't think the hummingbird either. I think the hummingbird is, is trash compared to the beetle. If I'm flying one of those things, give me the beetle. The beetle. It's a beetle. I mean, it, think about the battery that would be If you've be got required. a beetle, send it to our uh, send it to our P.O. box, okay? I'm just talking about battery technology here. <laughs> I, I think there is a beetle that can fly. You just couldn't have a battery that small. Yeah. This is a military technology. Maybe there's a maybe there's like a decaying isotope in that beetle. It's not a battery. It's a nuclear powered beetle. Oh, there you go. Okay. All right. Take it there. But I think that I think that it, <laughs> that normally in this situation you wouldn't have you wouldn't have eyes inside the building. So imagine right. this movie. If all other yeah. things are constant, but you can't see what they're doing, they'd only see the drone footage. I kind of love that idea. They saw it, them it all walk of, in the door, and then it's just kind of like box. Jaws at that point, right? Like right. it's just like you know it's you know that something bad's going on in there, but it's uh, it's unknowable, right? So you're sitting in your in your drone, uh, you know, chain of command, and you're just looking at a white box, and you don't know whether they're sleeping, you don't know whether they're having tea, 
and trying to make this decision. You don't have that that heightened drama of like they're putting the best on. Go go. Right. It would be much more like I think you would get that go go situation if you saw them come out and all pile into a car. It would be like we have thirty seconds. Let's do this. But. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks. Every week, myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talking about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like, stars on the Hollywood Walk. Okay. Second big news. Mm-hmm. The reviews are in. Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. This film is based on a very famous like ethics dilemma, the trolley problem. But I thought it was so interesting when they stack the propaganda war as a second element. I thought that was brave from a filmmaking standpoint. Like like the idea that it's better to have 80 people die when like putatively bad people that did it versus one little girl die when we who are trying to make the case that we're the good guys did it. Right. Because the ultimate goal is to win the hearts and minds of the global community and, right. uh, and bad press to them is, is a more effective weapon. Well, it makes you wonder like, does this, does, does droning this house, like, like everybody that is going to the market, that's half a block away is just going about their business. And then suddenly, they're, you know, on the ground with a bunch of puncture wounds from shrapnel from this drone bomb. Doesn't that have the effect of radicalizing everybody at the at the market? It does if you know that it's a drone fired missile. But if you're on the ground, can you tell the difference between a house exploding from a missile and a house exploding from a car bomb or a house exploding from a bomb inside the house that went off accidentally? No. Do you I, know? I don't think so. And I'm sure that the Kenyan government in a situation like that would say, uh, suicide bombers blew themselves up with their own bombs. Right. I don't huh. think. I don't think you. You would don't have. think that the news would would have that it was a drone. No, I think the I think the military keeps that pretty far under wraps, and not only that, but wow. denies it. Deni- denies it if it, if somebody makes that accusation. That's another thing that is crazy about this movie is like the way the UK is running the Kenyan military. Like Kenya was a colony of the UK and is now like an ally, I guess, but like when you see Helen Mirren, like issuing orders directly to a Kenyan military commander. Well, she's doing that to U S air force personnel too. I mean, you know, like, uh, it's, it's, it's a global, uh, sort of post NATO 
global war scenario. Yeah. This uh, question of of the propaganda war and whether or not this an action like this would radicalize the the neighbors if they found out it was a strike like this. One of the coolest dynamics in this movie is between the military and the politicians. And the people in the military, in particular, Alan Rickman and, you know, the, the top brass and Helen Mirren, um, they have a very military idea about this, which is, this is a mission. We have a target. You know, we've been chasing this person for a long time and we need to use military force to destroy them. Then that, that is their whole take, right? They, neither of those neither of those characters are ever interested in talking about the political wins. They're, they're really not even particularly swayed by the presence of the little girl. Like at any point, listen, we got this hammer. All of these nails are here, right? Let's get the hammer in at any point in the film. If you had given the decision-making power to either one of those characters, they would have launched the missiles immediately. And so the dynamic between them and you know, elected officials and appointed officials and all these layers of lawyers and so forth. Matt Martin said that there's, there's a thing called action bias, which is that when you're in a situation like this, you have a natural bias toward doing something. And so a lot of decisions are made where, where you just have, um, well, let's see, there's do something or do nothing. I don't want to seem ineffectual. Let's do something. And often doing something is, is the worst choice. Right. Uh, but that, that dynamic, I mean, I really felt that tension and I really felt the trolley problem being complicated by the fact that you have these layers of actors that have not just different moral values, but like institutional values. The army is never going to say, let's save this little girl at the expense of the potential suicide bombing as a propaganda victory. Like the army's just never going to think that way, right? Because they've got these cool guns. Um, they want so bad to hear somebody say rifle, 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 missile away. Right. <laughs> like, do the do they really have like that much concern in each in, in each moment, like about their legal exposure? Because that's like a big a big element of this movie is every time they call a lawyer into the room to be like, hey, like, am I going to be like indictable if I? you know, fudge the numbers on the, on the CDE or whatever. I think the thing about rules of engagement is that they're established in advance precisely for that reason. You don't, if, if there are rules of engagement and there always are, they're going to stipulate who has the authority and how you're protected and what the law is. I think the rules of engagement are there precisely so that you don't call the prime minister while he's in the bath. You don't have to, right? <laughs> and if you if you exceed your authority, or I mean, if, if the rules of engagement say you, you can or cannot do this, like you're somewhat bound by that. And that's, and we see that all the time. I mean, Helen Mirren is, she's a high ranking officer. This has been her prime directive for the second half of her career. And she doesn't have the authority to pull the trigger herself. You know, at, at a certain point it would, it would reach its, but somewhere there would be somebody with the authority that wouldn't have to worry about whether or not they're going to get indicted. That felt like a real Bush administration echo where people were writing memos, all those torture memos where it was like, is it cool that we're doing this? And the other guy's like, let me just write this down. Uh, let me get a lawyer on the phone. 
<laughs> you know, there there was there is some precedent for that. that right. But I don't I don't think in a situation like this it would have been so that, that there would have been just so many different people unwilling to make a decision. That really is like the second layer to the conflict, right? Like the main thing that you're asked to adjudicate as a viewer is like the 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 moral dilemma of drone use period but then there's like the fecklessness of political and military leadership just under that that i don't think makes anyone feel comfortable throughout the entire runtime of the film no matter what side of that first case you're on right and the international uh, real clear differences between the way a war room in the uk would operate yeah. Compared to one in the United States. Rickman's got to clear the room. I mean, that was a huge mistake, right? He doesn't have the authority to. Everyone who went to that meeting thought that they were there to take pictures. Oh, man. <laughs> this is what happens in a lot of these war movies, John. You go in to take pictures, yeah. and then there are extenuating circumstances. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Get me LinkedIn on my laptop. I liked the guy uh, playing the... Attorney General of the UK being the same guy from Master and Commander that had to look at the pictures to <laughs> to do the uh, operation on the doctor. Oh, yeah, right. Otherwise, the wound will separate and fester. <laughs> it's funny, our, the little, uh, the way that we've researched so many people in doing this <laughs> podcast. And when you go on Google and you see the names that you've already looked at kind of purpled out yeah where you're like oh yeah that that person was in a thing that i saw yeah. multiple times <laughs> <laughs> well i i want to talk about uh barkad abdi who you know made his um made his bones in the movie captain phillips as soon as yeah. he appeared on the screen in this movie he's so magnetic yeah and i was just i was thrilled to see him and then he really delivers throughout the film like uh, like an incredible character, but also incredibly portrayed. I was so worried that he was not out of the movie once they chased him away. Like, cause, cause they chase him away f from, uh, from buying the bread at like the two thirds mark. And, and I was, I was like, oh man, he was like really, I was really here for his part of the story. He was pretty heroic. And um, again, to quote Matt Martin, he said, <clears throat> in his experience in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, we really did have assets like that on the ground. People, local people who were committed to helping the United States, putting their lives on the line. And <clears throat> Matt said he routinely, you know, had to watch these incredible spies. He had to watch them get killed from two miles up in the sky because wow. we didn't do as good enough job of, or they were taking you know, real risks, but he, uh, he offered the commentary that under the current administration that a spy like that would not, would not be able to get a visa to the United States. Um, wow. and, you know, and in the past it was, it was hard, but we tried to, I mean, various administrations right. do a better or worse job of, of, of like uh, if their cover gets blown, at least they can take refuge in a, right in the U S but, uh, but right now, you know, that guy would, that guy would go back to base and not even be able to visit the United States. Not, not even be able to take a college class online. I would love to see the expense reports that the, that, that character files at the end of a mission, like <laughs> bought 30 buckets, <laughs> bought 75 loaves of bread, 
What were you doing, man? My favorite minor character was the original bucket salesman who has all his yeah. buckets and his jacket bought from him. Yeah. And the look of yeah. incredulity once the it's van like, leaves, he's like, this guy? I just had an awesome day, but I do not understand it. <laughs> <laughs> what is that guy doing? Engaging in some kind of bucket arbitrage? Does he yeah. know a place that you could sell these buckets for more? That's what he's doing. He's taking these buckets to the other side of town and marking up the price. Yeah. And he needed my fancy jacket. He needed my San Francisco 49ers yeah. jacket or whatever. Yeah, his Charlotte Hornet <laughs> starter jacket. <laughs> I thought there was the great detail being that he had like kind of a shitty shirt under it. Like the shirt was had some rips and stuff. Yeah. You write about uh, Barkad Abdi. He's great in this movie. The moment that had me yelling at my TV uh, occurred right before it happened in the film, though. The, why don't you get Jama to buy the bread and get her off the scene was something in my head for 10 minutes before it actually happened. And it was driving me nuts. Go buy the bread. <laughs> yeah. Go buy the bread. But he's, Did you spend all your money on buckets, Jama? Come on. But he clearly, <laughs> he clearly understood that he was, he was already somewhat compromised in that community. People yeah. knew who he was. He'd been there before. Like there was a reason... I think that he had graduated to working in the van yeah. um, rather than doing this kind of like street alley work because it's going over- It's the van principle yeah. of Spycraft. You work your way up until you stop at the van. Well, then you get out of the van, you move up to the hangar. Right. And then from the hangar, you know, hopefully you're, you're looking at a computer screen in Hawaii. Right. I was very worried for him after the drone strike because he goes right back to that corner and the militia guys are still there kind of surprised that they that they staged it like that uh, i actually have a moment of pedant i didn't mean to walk into my own moment of pedantry but but here we are uh, at the end of the movie when the militia are removing the machine gun from the back of the truck the one crewman lifts the base post the gun was sitting on and throws it aside the base post would have been welded or at very least bolted into the bed of the truck agreed yeah I like that one just because we've we've spent a lot of time talking about Hiluxes with bed-mounted machine guns on this show, and I was shocked to see that it was just a just a plate that sat there. Doesn't seem like it would uh, stop the recoil if it was just sitting there using nothing but friction to hold it down. It was a uh, it was a tire with cement inside, like a tether ball. <laughs> <laughs> you got to do better than that. Well, uh, uh, you know, since this is the uh, the Matt Martin uh, commemorative episode, I'm gonna I'm gonna offer you his take on that scene. Oh, was, great! In all the years, he's not he's not sure whether Al Shabab would would rescue a little girl in the back of one of their trucks, but he said um, ISIS and Al Qaeda. He never saw them do a thing like that. They would have driven right over the little girl. Wow. In, in his experience from watching on high. Uh, so he said, I, you know, I can't, I can't speak to Al Shabaab, but ISIS wow. wouldn't, wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have batted an eye. That's fucked up. I mean, that's what really puts them at the top for me as far as terrorist organizations. Like they're the ones with heart. Well, we, we don't know that for sure. This has been, a, this is dramatized for effect. Who else is going to rush the girl to the hospital? <laughs> Cause that is a terrible scene in the hospital. I don't know. Now, because I'm a, a father of a little girl, I don't know how those scenes look anymore to other other people. 
10 years ago, I'm not sure if I would have watched that and been sort of mildly moved or whether I would have felt like the movie was manipulating my emotions or whatever. But as a, as a father of a girl, almost exactly that age, I was profoundly moved and, um, I already enjoyed the movie, but I felt like it was a, I felt like they really landed the, the end of this film. Everybody, like you say, the, the, the bends of walking out of that shipping container at dawn for Jesse Pinkman and his, and his wingman or, uh, his, uh, the gal that was doing the weapons, his friend who looks exactly like Anne Hathaway, but is not Anne Hathaway. She really does look like, there were a few times I was like, if that was Anne Hathaway, I would know, but it sure does look like Anne Hathaway. But then that, like you were saying, Alan Rickman with the doll, all of that just felt really like we got each one of these stories kind of got wrapped up, but in a way that, that felt very satisfyingly unresolved. Helen Mirren, you know, she walked out of that room feeling like she had sort of compromised her integrity and she lost the respect of her crew. Yeah. But she might get a promotion. I mean, it's really, uh, there's a lot left hanging. What did you think about that interaction between Alan Rickman and Monica Dolan? Uh, Like that seems to be like where the movie really like puts a pin in what it thinks the dilemma is. Like when she says you did this from the comfort of your chair and I think it's disgraceful. And he says, never tell a soldier that he does not know the cost of war. Well, yeah, you're right. And that is a, there's a thing that we see in our, in our modern time, which is soldiers kind of draping themselves a little bit in the flag in the uh, in the flag of their sacrifice right that right. that a soldier's sacrifice puts them above criticism somewhat and that's a that's a post 911 mental corruption i think you know a soldier is not above civilian reprimand but in that situation she had a lot of hubris to imagine that he was a desk jockey the same way she was. And so when he says, I've been into the immediate aftermath of multiple suicide bombings in my life and know exactly what the cost is, I felt like that was a, that was pretty, um, that was pretty effective, pretty heavy. It worked a little less for me, I would say, because that felt like a scene that was very much directed at an audience Mm. in that uh, Angela is the proxy for us and her judgment of him and and the military industrial complex is supposed to be in our voice and when he claps back at her that hard i think that is a clap back meant for the viewer in some ways like even though we are made to judge the process as viewers of the film i think it tamps that down a little bit with uh with Powell's reaction or Benson's reaction i mean i wondered cuz i mean She's definitely the one that is riding for restraint for most of the course of the film, which I think is roughly real time. Like once the once they're like set up over the first house, like I think that that is meant to be basically real time through till the end of the film. And she does like come down on the side of shoot the missile at least once, I think, but is is there to to be a voice of restraint for a lot of it and 
I thought her performance was so great because when because when he claps back at her, she's she's really devastated. But I don't know that he convinced her. She should be devastated. She got way the fuck out of her lane. Like I thought that was a a bad moment for her. If they if that scene is not in the film, I think Angela is a good character throughout. But I thought that was a terrible look for her, and I thought. Benson was 100% right to do it. So so by giving her that terrible look, do you think that the film is condemnatory of the values that she represents? No, I think that scene succeeds in muddying the moral waters as the film comes to a close. Like I think that's good. It's it's a it's a conflict that continues. I I don't think he would have convinced her because I don't think any more those two sides of a question like this are willing or able to be convinced by the other side. Right. Right. He's, she's never going to convince him, even though he clearly has either a, a grade school age daughter or granddaughter that he's buying this doll for. It's never, it's never resolved. He's, he's never going to see that equation in terms of the little girl's life being worth the missed opportunity. And she, as a, as a politician is never, is never going to not see the optics over the strategery. Right. Cause critically she's the one that, that makes the case that 80 dead bodies might be preferable if they were killed by the people that we are enemies of, which is kind of a report, a morally repugnant I- idea. Well, this is what I'm saying. Is there anybody other than the pilot and his, and his uh, crew that actually sheds a tear like it's the pilot that has the immediate responsibility and it's the pilot that is um that actually cares about the little girl's life everybody else in the movie cares about her as a as a, a people pawn. will be mad at us if we yeah. kill her is this legal how is this going to look there's right. there's there's no uh, above the the level of the pilot there's no one that's really like mourning her Whereas the the pilot is like looking at her and watching her all day and invested yeah. in her life and has the, you know, ultimately is the one that pulls the trigger. I wanted him to like just one time tell the camera operator not to enlarge the picture of the girl. Like, cut that out. <laughs> I'm trying to like focus <laughs> on the like larger mission. And if you keep punching in on the innocent that I'm going to kill potentially she has a lot of power in those scenes to make both us and aaron paul see what she wants us to see one of the uh things about this movie that i found hilarious is at a certain point like the the face they are just accepting facetime calls like once they've run the the question up to the foreign secretary or whatever then like suddenly like just a random bureaucrat from the United States is calling in to say like, Hey, we're going to be mad at you if you don't kill this person right now. (laughs) Like, and then, you know, the film opens up in this weird way where we're like calling Singapore and we're calling China. Um, but, uh, I, I think it's the UK foreign secretary that, uh, is, uh, speaking at like a weapons convention in Singapore and, (laughs) I don't know if you guys noticed that the uh, that the British company that uh, that he's there to advocate for uh, the abbreviation of their name is IBS. Yeah, I did see that. 
he's and then he's shooting himself for the rest of the movie. If you're gonna put one joke in a movie, is that the one? I could not believe my luck that this was the joke in the the one joke in the entire movie. It's strange that that guy has more of an inner life than the Aaron Paul character, you know? Like, Aaron Paul has zero inner life. He is just a guy at the controls, tormented by the decision in front of him. Yeah. But, you know, he's a he's a lieutenant, single guy, living in a, living in a shipping container. Matt Martin was, um, he felt like for him to be the rank that he was... He should have been promoted if he had two years of service, which he claims. Yeah. He should already be a first lieutenant. And uh, for him to be a second lieutenant meant that he was a fuck up. Mm, he was kind of mavericking. Yeah. So maybe maybe the super discerning viewer would see on his, on his rank the signs of an inner life that the rest of us maybe miss. I need you both back here in 12 hours. One of my favorite parts of this film is the ambiguity that it leaves you with at the end. Like we see a lot of films in this project where you are made intentionally to feel bad at the end for what you've seen and what you've experienced. And for a film that shows us the death of an innocent girl, I was surprised that my bad feelings weren't deeper by the end. I mean, you see, there's sort of a montage where we see Powell driving home, scowling. We see Aaron Paul and his uh, his co-pilot, Carrie Gershon, leaving the trailer. You see them greeted by their lieutenant. Uh, no one feels good, but I he's think... A, he's a major, but... Sure. There's like a neutrality in emotion at the end that I that is almost worse than feeling bad this this moral confusion is what creates it i think and that tension between ambiguity and certainty is a major part of this film because powell is aiming for the certain throughout a statistical level at which she can order the missiles fired and feel good about it along with everyone in the room the goal is that kind of certainty and we never get it on any level in the film. And I think for that reason, I'm going to go for something a little different in the, in the rating system. I'm going to go with collateral damage estimation. Hmm. And we're going to go by percentage. It is uh, in the film... <laughs> oh, this is going to drive people crazy, and I love it for that. In the film, it is super important that that number is below 50%, and ideally 45%. 45% is the goal percentage that Powell is is trying to get in the room. If she can hit that number, it means that they can shoot the missile and feel not good about it, but statistically good about it. And so on a scale of 0 to 100% CDE, that is how we will rate Eye in the Sky. I'm not sure if I left the film learning anything new about dronery, Mm. but I learned a lot about the relationships between the people who fly them and the people they take orders from and, and the political powers that those people take orders from. I thought for a long time that like the main conflict about drones was how bad it is to take the human element out of warfare. You need 
to not have things be so automated. You need a human element there to be a backstop for a lot of this stuff. But drone warfare doesn't remove the human element. As long as there's that human element, you're subject to a human's inner life projecting itself onto these decisions. And I thought that was a really good and interesting depiction in the film. I like that it's a film that lets its characters speak for themselves without sanctimony. There is no big speech that anyone gives as the music swells and people get on their side. There's none of that. And that, I think, again, speaks to the film's ambiguity. And I like that. I like being respected as a viewer enough to just come up with my own conclusions. It made me also wonder, like, is there such a thing as a non-lethal drone-deployed ordinance? Because it seems like that is a technology that is really needed in times like this or in circumstances like this, you know? I mean, it's like an air freshener or... I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Delivers, like, cut oranges to a soccer game? What could you drop on a house to immobilize the people inside versus blow it up? Is there such a thing? You could toilet paper it. Is anyone even trying? toilet paper all the trees and make them feel embarrassed. I would like that. Drop some, like, expanding foam that just stops them. Yeah, right. Or bouncy balls. Just... Just drop like a thousand bouncy balls. Oh, like that Sony commercial. Yeah, every the whole neighborhood would come to a stop. What's that movie at the end where uh, the B1 shoots the laser at the house and it fills up with freshly popped popcorn? <laughs> is that yeah. true genius? I think so. What we need is a popcorn bomb. Oh, the popcorn bomb. I hope someone's on that. I think that's maybe more than anything what this film makes the case for. Popcorn bomb. I liked it a lot. I think uh, I think I'm assigning a collateral damage estimation of eighty five percent on this film. Good movie, should be seen. Does the death of the girl is it outweighed by the potential lives saved? I kept hoping for greater effort to get her out of the scene. I don't think that. I mean, Jama tries. But they could have called a local service station or something. That's what I kept on wanting was like, as the film plays out, I don't feel like they did enough to save her life. And in that way, I'm against the firing of the missile. But if they tried harder to, to get her out of the way and out of the scene, I feel like I feel like they could have shot and not felt bad about it. I, I just don't think that they tried hard enough to get her out. They needed more Jamas. They did. We all need more Jamas. I will... Rate the movie slightly higher. I'll give it 89% collateral damage estimate. Uh, I was totally surprised by this movie. I kind of thought it was going to be schlocky and bad and, you know, kind of obsessed with its own technology. Helen Mirren is squinting at you right now Mm -hmm. for the notion. A lot of the, like, styling of the art around this film makes it look like it's going to be a Bruckheimer like 90s you know like super cool digital transitions between everything felt like it might be enemy of the state ish right uh, but like brainless and uh. i felt like it was surprisingly heady and but in a way that was like it wasn't like smarty pants it was just, it was just worked it, its way in and and got you interested in this dilemma and then you know unpacked it slowly in a way that i thought was really good it was very a very compelling watch. It 
surprised me in a bunch of places. Um, a great final role for Alan Rickman. I thought he was really terrific in it, um, and I really missed him. Seeing him on screen was really sad. But, yeah, overall, I, I, uh, I thought it was great, and I do hope uh, some people check it out as a result of this episode. And where are you on the trolley problem? I think I don't shoot the missile, and I hope that both bombers get in one car when they leave, and then we can follow that car and try and grab them in a context where the militia's not around, or cordon them off in a context where the militia's not around. Here's... Uh, it's tricky because one one thing that is highly unrealistic about this movie is that they show cars driving from one part of Nairobi to another and never encountering any traffic. And uh, Nairobi is Nairobi makes L.A. look like it is a well-designed city with very little traffic to speak of. <laughs> and I, the case uh, that that they could leave the house and not be in a huge crowd of people ever is uh, not easy to make. So. That complicates my answer a little bit, I guess. But I don't know. I, I think I, uh, I, I think I've chosen the career of podcaster so that I have to make as few life and death decisions as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked it. I liked the movie. I was worried that Helen Mirren, um, in playing uh, a strong female lead, that was over the top, sort of the bloodthirstiest character in the film you know, was going to go too, too far to create this, this person that we knew we've seen in thousands of war movies, usually portrayed as a guy. It was a, a male in the script. Yeah. Male part. And so for her to, you know, to, to get that kind of single mindedness, that bloodthirstiness, I, uh, at the very beginning of the movie, I was like, Oh, I see who this character is now. How is she going to do this? But she really did, convince me of that character and she did it through she did it not by being um bloodthirsty but by being single-minded and obsessed with this mission she wanted to kill the conspirator so bad that she dropped a hellfire missile onto her body to make sure yeah and that was like that was such a cherry on top where she's like (laughs) she is completely dying Covered with rubble, crawling, you know, we don't even know if she still has legs, but we're going to put another missile on her. How is there anything left of her besides a mist after that second one? I mean, all uh, that girl in Hawaii, all she finds is like half a face or whatever. Yeah. Um, I just, I liked all the portrayals and I felt like this did add a lot to my sort of understanding of drone combat. I've been pretty vocal about drone warfare as a moral conundrum and that their pilots aren't real pilots well i would never say that having you know being being good friends with uh with like a guy with i know multiple kills but this did give me that insight into how how much more human element there is intellectually i want to say i respect the hell out of drone pilots and i think the worst thing you can do is disrespect one otherwise you're just going to get a drone above your house that's right every hour that's right they're watching you right now there's a fucking bug in here i know and it's not pointed at me nope 
Adam is also the only one of the three of us that has his FAA drone pilot license. So. That's right. You do have your drone pilot license. I do have a lot of hours. What's your call I have, sign? I have no kills, though. You're not the littlest midshipman. What ben, is your... ben has more drone kills than I do. Oh, that's right. Drone. I watched Ben <laughs> kill a drone. Yeah. <laughs> that was an expensive day. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but the idea that drone pilots and all these people in the chain of command have this much intel on what's happening and, and, and the effects uh, of their decisions. It changes the nature of this kind of warfare for me. I've always said the reason that drone, that drones were kind of uh, like morally sticky was that we didn't have any, any skin in the game, right? If the drone gets right. shot down, who cares? Um, it's just money, right? We're not risking pilots. We're not risking lives. But the flip side of it, which is that there's all this, um, it's not just that the pilot goes home and has bad dreams. It's that everyone in the decision-making chain has an extremely clear picture, not just of like who they're killing and why, but like what the street looked like that day and what kind of car the person drives. And that's, that just is, um, I don't I don't know how much that's affecting the decisions we're making in yeah, combat. Yeah, there's like an intimacy with your target that is so unique. Yeah, it's it's uh, unprecedented after we stopped fighting with knives. I mean, it's basically like psychologically a sort of knife fight. Hmm. Uh and is that is that changing the nature of war? It has to. And we just don't have a way to calculate it yet because we don't have the ability to we're not in there. We're not interviewing those pilots where it's there's we haven't figured out a statistical way to say, does this make us more or less trigger happy? And that also I thought was really compelling. So I'm going to give this a 92% collateral damage estimate. It also was a great thriller, right? It could have, this could have been just a movie that takes place in a shipping container, but we yeah. also got this great adventure Great special effects, great on-screen tension. So I thought it was a cool movie. Adam, did you have a guy? Yeah. You know, my guy changed throughout the film, but finally landed on Sergeant Sadiq. He's the sergeant who's in the room with Powell, and he's the one that gets leveraged into jacking down his CDE percentage. It has got to be so hard to be him. In this film. And I think a question that may be more interesting to me than the trolley question is what you do if you're Sadiq. Are you changing your number for Powell? Yeah. I think it's extremely hard not to. You got to. You have to. She's and the boss. Is that a is that a, a morally equivalent question to the trolley question? I think it is. In it the is. context of this film. Um He's played by Babu Sise, and I think just his performance is great in the film. Uh, I, he doesn't have a lot of scenes, but I think you read his torment in every scene. He's he's with uh, he's with the great Helen Mirren, and like he, uh, God, that poor guy. Like you don't see him go home, but you know he had a rough day. I think if <laughs> I think if that if that action room, if that you know, if if those characters were Americans. I don't think we would have seen him wrestling with his desire to do his duty, but also like the 
the um, the inner struggle. I think there would have been a much clearer sort of in an American room like that. It would have been clearer that they were working at working with a united purpose. Like yeah. everyone in here is trying to kill these bad guys. Boy, and like the way Powell kind of both good cop and bad cops him throughout the film, like <laughs> appealing to his better nature and also like giving him an order in a threatening way. Like right. she does all of it. She cajoles him. She sweet talks him. He, he really eats a lot of shit in this movie. So <laughs> there's my guy. <laughs> what about you, Ben? My guy is uh, an inanimate guy. The general that Alan Rickman plays has a a non-military life, a a private personal life, and uh, in that personal life, he is buying a gift for a child. He buys the wrong dolly. He buys the time to sleep doll when he should have bought a baby moves doll. And uh, I often feel like the incorrect dolly. So uh, the incorrect dolly is my guy. Oh, incorrect dolly. You know, I have to say that my guy in this movie is Lieutenant Colonel Matt Martin, United States Air Force, <laughs> retired. Uh, I just learned that his, and I knew this already, but his call sign was Killjoy. Wow. And he he just wrote me to say his call sign still is Killjoy. Yeah, because, because once a call sign, yeah. always a call sign. And, you know, there's something about Matt Martin that is a little bit of a Killjoy. I think if, the, <laughs> if there were a bunch of Air Force pilots all sitting around spilling beer on each other, yeah. uh, he would come in and say... Hey, let's uh, let's tighten this up. Uh, let's empty those ashtrays and make this room more presentable. I asked Matt Martin one time <laughs> if he would go on a on a manned mission to Mars where there was no chance of returning to Earth. And before uh-huh. I had even gotten the question out, he was like, "Absolutely." <laughs> and I think he actually has applied. Wow. wow! So we may we may not have him forever, but in terms of the movie, um, I really enjoyed the character of the airman first class played by Phoebe Fox, uh, in the shipping container, you know, that character could have been, that was an opportunity. And it was a, it was a character I watched a lot because there was this opportunity for that person to be the moral center, right? She's a woman in the flight team, um, and a lesser movie would have made her more of a more of a proxy for our hearts. And instead, what she was was an enlisted like soldier in the Air Force who was on her first mission and like along for the ride. And she really showed us an awful lot in her face that uh, where she was conveying how overwhelming that must have been or that that would be for anyone who'd been on a hundred missions, but, but I saw in her face that this was her first mission throughout the whole film. And I thought it was an impressive performance uh, with very little dialogue, you know? Yeah. And, and look at how her, the shots that she's in are composed. They're close-ups of her face and all you get is dialogue and expression. You get no posture or physicality in any other way from her. She does a lot with a little. Yeah. She's good. Well, do you guys want to pick our next motion picture here for the Friendly Fire podcast? Yeah, let me get our Friendly Fire 120-sided die. I'm going to build a little die corral here. Ben is just expecting a Shia LaBeouf film next. Well. (laughs) That's his resting state. 
All right, here we go. For uh, for friendly fire, here is the die roll. Sounds better than ever. <laughs> oh, a little bit of a surprise there at the end. Just it uh, just tipped over to 80. 80. 80 is a 1969 World War II movie. Uh, it is The Bridge at Remagen. Oh, hey, hello. This the is movie you put uh, on the list, John. This is a classic war film. You've seen this one before? Yeah. Well, this was a this was a war movie in the. Um, this is like this is one of those war movies that you thought we would be mainly watching. Yeah, right. But it was it was from that era where they had made all the war movies about all the big things. They'd made the D Day movies and they'd made the Pearl Harbor movies, and now they were making war movies about some smaller actions. Mm. Uh, like the Remagen Bridge incident was, you know, it was like a, a pretty good, pretty good little, little action, but, um, it was a decisive moment, but it's not like the war hung in the balance, you know? But anyway, this was, I watched this on television in the late seventies. They, they put it on TV and this was one of those that I sat in my pajamas and watched and it established, <laughs> it, it established a certain kind of tone to war movies for me. This feels to me a little bit like the the store brand movie made to look like the uh, the national brand. Like because after Bridge <laughs> on the River Kwai, if you're going to be a bridge titled movie, you better be good. That's right. Although yeah. there are a lot of there we're there are going to be a couple more movies we watch about uh, about bridges. A yeah. bridge too far. Yeah, it's another bridge mm. movie. Bridges play a major role. We're going to have to rank all the bridge movies. That's right, eventually. Or we can't do three bridge movies in a row. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, uh, that'll be next week. Uh, thanks to Lieutenant Colonel Matt Martin, retired for uh, answering John's emails. That's uh, really nice of you. You didn't have to do that. He's the fourth beetle on Friendly Fire. <laughs> Fuck, Rob is going to be pissed. Now he's the fifth beetle. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we uh, appreciate everybody listening, and we'll leave it with Rob's from here. So, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast, hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.